0: You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It's been a month since the Safe Access Program requiring proof of vaccines for restaurants and bars kicked in. And now Maui County awaits the governor's approval to loosen some of the COVID restrictions on crowd size and hours. We talked to Maui restaurateur Aaron Pakarakis, who owns several establishments. He reflected on the ups and downs of this past year, but remains positive for things to come as we learn to live with this virus.
1: I had a couple places. One's a pizza place and one is a kind of a casual breakfast, lunch, dinner place. that has been open for years and years that when all the hotels were shut down, I was able to kind of keep those open. Delivery, takeout, not really doing much. And then when the hotels open, I have a steakhouse at the Hyatt Regency, the big hotel in Kaanapali. And they open October 15th and I opened October 15th with our place there, even before they opened all all their own outlets. And then November 1st, the Fairmont reopened. And that's when I reopened our fish market there. And so from that point, October, November, December, we kind of picked up, you know, modestly got back into it with uh, not necessarily a full crew because the town was kind of empty at the time. But as things filled up over the holidays, and then January was decent, February, and then all of a sudden, boom, March, April, May, June, July, August. One month bigger than the next. And even with uh, limited seating, it just, uh, when the green light came and people started coming over, you know, we really had uh, a nice mix of people. And you found that as you opened up, reopened these restaurants and wasn't sure what to expect, so you conservatively staffed the places and you kind of tried to simplify the menu a little bit so it was a little easier to execute so you could maybe have a few less people to be able to execute back of the house and front of the house. And the next thing you know, you find that, wow, you can do more with less if you really concentrate on things. And so that's how you started. And then slowly you start bringing the people back and expanding the menu back to where it was. And it kind of gave you a nice little jump start. And I'm kind of one of those weird guys that to me, no matter how bad it is, there's got to be an opportunity to kind of improve or make something better and try to see how we can regroup. So when when you're blessed like I've been with the family and with the health, to me I just will not get into pity potty. I figure this has got to be an opportunity to see how we can do it better and make the best of it. And it was kind of cool where you bond with your team and I was fortunate enough to be able to keep the health insurance going for all my places and you know I had a management team that was able to kind of we kept together And did some things we never would have time for, whether it be redoing our storage rooms and redoing some of the furniture and reevaluating certain things. And all of a sudden, it became kind of exciting in its own way. So instead of worrying about how bad it was, we're trying to think, okay, this is an opportunity that we'll probably never get again. (laughs) Where You have two operations in hotels that were basically locked down and closed for six months. That'll never happen again. And so, you know, how do you take advantage of that and get that team focused and try to see how you can position yourself so when things get back to, even if it's not normal, how are you going to hit that ground running? So I was lucky to have a team that was on the same page as me. So we're able to get to that point and really got to know each other better and work together and plan out things and then execute. And next thing you know, you're doing big time business, even though uh, I'm fortunate enough to Three of my four plays are open air. So even though I had some seating restrictions, I was still able to do the kind of business I needed to do to justify the staffing and take care of it. So we were able to just run on all cylinders. And a couple months ago, when all of a sudden the governor said, don't come to Hawaii, all of a sudden that happened in September. And if you were going to ever say something like that, that's the perfect month to say it. Because September's always been a dog month you know, summer's over and people are going back to school. So it's always been a kind of not a good month. So I'm not sure if the governor really thought about that. Probably not. But it did work out. So when things did slow down, it's still better than most Septembers were in the past because there were still people coming. Now, we lost a lot of pre-bookings in September and October because those months were going to all of a sudden be crazy months like the previous months. So What it did was it kind of corrected itself and you got back to more of a modest volume but i think that almost positions ourselves to kind of regroup and get ready now for the festive which is coming up before we know it pretty much mid-october and next thing you know we're going to be right in it so i think it's given us all a chance to kind of regroup and then you got the issues with the vaccinations and you got some people that have certain ideas and you got to really respect what people are thinking but still Have the guidelines that we have to follow. So it was kind of nice that they gave us the rules so we don't look like the bad guys. We got to follow it. So I'm not going to my employees and saying, you got to get a vaccination. I can go to my employees and say, I got a vaccination, but it's easier for me personally. I would certainly recommend it, but it's up to you. If you don't, here's what you got to do. So, I mean, in my staff, it's like, I think 80, 85% of our people all got vaccinated. Some of the younger ones, you know. Didn't really want to do it, and that's cool as long as they get tested once a week, which they do, so it makes you feel like you're not just shoving it down their throat, and by us having an option, you're able to do that.
0: This past month, has it been okay then?
1: Yeah, it's been okay, It's but it's almost a blessing in some ways because we were able to kind of figure this out. You know, all of a sudden, if people are getting tested every week, you can't really schedule until you know if they got that week, until they get their negative test, so... All of a sudden, every Monday at one place, everyone's got to get the test in by this time. And when you're in hotels, and a lot of these hotels have layers of liability, where if you come in contact with somebody that is positive, you're ten days out. Period. Whether you test negative or vaccinated, there's a protocol that you have to go through. It's five days or it's ten days. So they're really on it, and that makes us be on it. So the next thing you know, it's you know, I think a lot of the employees. And even customers start realizing, okay, we got to go by the rules. This is what it is. It's not this one restaurant making it the rule on their own. So we're all in the same boat and you just got to make the best of it. And, you know, occasionally you will get clients and customers that don't get it or that came from the mainland where, and a lot of times, you know, people that are in Texas or Florida or some of these states where it's like their status quo, everything's back to normal, all of a sudden they come here. And you know, you gotta wear your mask, you gotta do these things and they're like, Really? You know, so you do get that once in a while. And now with having to check a vaccine card, I have one place that's indoor hundred percent, so you do have to check, but you know, most people have it. You have it on your phone and now and again you'll get someone that says, I'm not I'm not doing that you know, you get that once in a while then you just have to say bye bye. Sorry. I think that there was a time here in a weird kind of way that everyone's appreciated each other a little more and appreciated the fact that whether it be farmers or whether it be how you're shipping things and all these things that are all connected, it's just not the restaurant or hospitality industry. Everything is linked. So the next thing you know, people really are compassionate about these businesses that are struggling. And you see a lot of people, oh, we're so glad you're open. Oh, thank you. And starting to do takeout and deliveries and all these things. So there was a lot of that goodwill that I felt was really spreading throughout this time and you know how when you get the adversity sometimes you know people kind of get together and I I felt there was a really good vibe a positive vibe through all the frustration there was some of that positivity that I really kind of embraced and noticed and fed off of and I think a lot of us did that you know we started a restaurant Hui, over here in Maui a 108 of us because we do have a restaurant association that we're all members of, but that's kind of Oahu-centric. And, you know, here we're in Maui, and it's a little different beast, and Kauai has their own too, and we kind of all got together and started sharing, what are you doing here? How are we going to do that? Let's all do this. Let's, You know, and all of a sudden you find that all those people in that industry where you have so much in common with, where days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years, you never even notice who your neighbors are. All of a sudden you find that, wow we're all in this together. That's a good idea. Let's all do this. Let's all do that. And we kind of got a little bond. So to me, there's a lot of positive that came out of this. You know, you hear everyone talk about, we want to get back to normal. Well, my thing is, I don't want it back to normal. I want it to be better than ever. How do we forget about normal? What is normal? We should all be focusing on how we're going to get better. How Are we going to make it better for each other, for our local people? I think it gave us a chance to kind of appreciate the people that are here too whether it be the farmers or whether it be the fishermen or whether it be construction workers, you know, we're all in this together. And we all have kids going to the same schools and this and that. So I think, you know, it got us together in a lot of ways. And I think that instead of worrying about this new normal, let's see how we can get together and get things and make things better.
0: That was Maui's Aaron Placaracas reflecting on how his businesses have had to adapt to the ever-changing pandemic restrictions. He owns Sun's Steakhouse, uh, Manoli's Pizza Company, Nick's Fish Market, and Coho Grill Inn Bar. The latest challenge, he says now, is the rising cost of products due to the supply chain disruptions. <laughs> Here in the U.S., the focus has been getting our communities vaccinated and getting their booster shots. But how are other countries faring? That's what we look at today on our Long View segment. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us in the studio today. Good morning. Hi. So vaccines.
2: Yes, vaccines. Well, remember how much the pandemic is a global problem. And if it's a global problem, in theory, it requires a global solution, including vaccinations. So how do you how do you vaccinate the globe? It's a very tough question that two well-connected globally uh, philanthropists with lots of money, at least to get it started, took on. And their goal, they formed an organization called COVAX, was to set up an entity that took into consideration equality of, of what countries could afford and tried to create an incentive system That would start at the development of the vaccines all the way through the delivery of the vaccine to people uh, and do it in a way that the rich countries would benefit from all of this kind of vaccine research activity at the same time they would help pay for the poorer countries getting the vaccine. It's a great idea. Uh, it might even be a, a necessary idea, but up to now it has really not succeeded at all. And that's you can see that in an article called Naively Ambitious, How Kovacs Failed and Its Promise to Vaccinate the World, which is a piece based on the Bureau of, of Investigative Journalism. It is in something called Stat News, which is a big health thing. So the reasons are, are a very rich set of complexities, some of which are just organizational goof-ups, over-optimism on delivery, some of which are much more tied into the kind of standard relationship difficulties between first world and third world, and some of which are just kind of over-optimism and the inability to see what you are going to see. So we can talk about, you know, we we can, let's give the, mo- the, the clearest examples of difficulty from the standpoint of the poorer countries. They either weren't getting the vaccine in time. And in fact, all that the COVAX has only delivered, it's not going to make its 2021 goal. Only 5% of all the vaccines in the world have come through this COVAX system. And globally, only 2% of the population remains or has been vaccinated. Um, and think about how big a difference that is between that number and the developing countries. So what one of the things that happened early on is that COVAX didn't really have as good a distribution system as they thought. They couldn't get the vaccine as fast. They couldn't distribute it as fast. So you'd have these countries that would get one shot, but uh, wouldn't get enough for the second shot. You'd get situations where the public health systems in, let's say, some African country set up a system in anticipation, given the information they had gotten from COVAX, the stuff doesn't show up. Or the stuff would show up in surprise, and there would be no one ready to, to give it, and then you'd have to either lose the doses or give it back. So that is really, well, you know what kind of show that is. Um, and that was the most pressing problem. But that's the kind of organizational logistics problem that they should have been ready for. And they also should have been more ready, according to the report, for the fact that they were relying for so much of the vaccine on the Serum Institute of India, which is the biggest vaccine producer in the world, and in fact had had created a situation in which they would be players in almost every kind of vaccine that came out. So in theory, it made sense. Okay, we're going to get all this stuff through them. Well, yeah, except the uh, the pandemic did some odd things, like when the Delta variants and when India got hit real hard, the Indian politicians said you can't ship stuff out anymore. The critics of COVAX said you should have anticipated this. It's bad risk analysis. Anyway, That's the kind of thing that happened there. So that's the most obvious stuff. The rest of the stuff, in some ways, will be more long-term serious because it has to do with the relationships between rich countries and poor countries.
0: Well, you know, I'm just thinking, just flashback to our experience in the past year as we all kind of – you know, look back. And we had our issues, too, with, you know, we asked for this much, we get less. uh You know, the re- refrigeration issues and, and ramping up for that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, you, you can kind of see it's probably worse. As well, go, what go one the of the
2: things we discovered is how how beneath our expectations our public health system is in this country because it's underfunded, it's been ignored, and it wasn't really, it didn't have the resources, it also didn't have a presidential leadership that made it possible to mobilize. If you think we had it bad, you know how it is in, in other places. Uh, and so that's the that's the situation. Now, here are some of the problems that are, Let's say you want to do this, which is a good idea, and many people say it's an essential idea. There's no other way that you can you need something to make these to make global responses happening. And there isn't like a global institution. So you need something like this. So here are some of the things that also went wrong. Um, a lot of the private nonprofits, a lot of the interest groups in the third world countries in the developing countries said, you know what? They never let us at the table. We never were able to participate in the decision making process. And that meant we were cut out of it. We didn't know what would happen. And we have input in there. Besides which, we also have some distrust for people like uh, Melinda Gates. Because, who was very much involved in this because her attitude or, or Microsoft's attitude toward intellectual property was suspicious? You had this is a kind of classic first world, third world thing. The other thing about rich and poor is that when countries saw that this wasn't going to happen fast enough, they made their own deals. So, Operation Warp Speed, which is one of the really good things that Trump did. Well, that that meant we were going to buy the vaccines on our own. We weren't going to worry about this kind of system. What happened in the in these developing countries is that even though they had paid for vaccines already through Covax, at least as much as they could afford, it wasn't coming. So they had to double dip and 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 buy again. So all of those kinds of things were very much involved in the difficulties that Covax had an organization that was overly optimistic a problem that's enormously complex a general set of international politics that colors all kinds of things and makes global responses very difficult
0: and you really hope that they can get that fixed before the next virus comes along well, <laughs> well
2: that's right or that they can get it fixed now i mean they're attempting to get their the covax is attempting to bring more vaccine in and it's and it's attempting now to get Countries that have too much vaccine to ship it, to ship it out as soon as possible. And then you've got all these timing issues. But it's got to be for now something like COVAX to get this thing more global because it's not happening. It's not going to happen any other way. And it's such a small percentage that have been vaccinated.
0: Yeah. You know, and then it's just the uh, the desire to get vaccinated. Right. I mean, I saw the headlines. I think it's Portugal has got, you know, nearly the whole country, all yes. the adults are vaccinated. Well,
2: yeah, they are, they appointed the, the, a vice admiral who was a logistical specialist who made it a point to say, we're running this like a war and we're the military and wore his military fatigues every time he spoke. And that had, a, he said, I kept it out of politics. Well, one person did, didn't, but he played a big role in it. And they got, you know, at 98% vaccinated.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, lessons learned, right? Yeah, okay. you can only wonder. <laughs> okay. All
2: right. Well, thanks so much, <laughs> Neil. You're welcome.
0: We've been talking to contributor and political analyst Neil Milner with The Long View. Coming up, your reality check.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
4: HPR is seeking candidates for a multimedia producer to oversee production of on-air promos, live music events, and other content for broadcast and digital platforms. If you have experience in audio recording and production, if you're well-versed in audio capture and storage systems, and have a love for public radio, we would love to hear from you. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs.
3: Support for HPR comes from HomeWorks Construction, a full-service design-build firm that specializes in new homes, additions, and ADUs, accessory dwelling units. Recent projects and portfolio at HomeWorksConstruction.com.
0: Well, the state auditor is in very hot water. Today's reality check features a story about a special investigative committee's request for documents related to audit reports. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair shares the details. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this story has been brewing, gosh, all year. It's back and forth.
3: <laughs> yeah, and, and for once, uh, when I'm reporting, this is actually my story today. It happened yesterday. Adela uh, Albalati, the majority leader in the House of Representatives, is leading this investigative committee looking into two audits that were done by Les Kondo, the state auditor. Uh, One of the audits is on the Agribusiness Development Corporation. The audit basically found that the ADC wasn't really doing what it was chartered for. And the other audit was on uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources, some sort of land conservation fund. And that was done by his office as well. And so Della al committee has been meeting several times now this year, and people are starting to wonder, well, what are you really looking for? Because just watching it, including the news reports, it seems to have descended into a bit of a a battle between Representative Bilotti and State Auditor Kondo going back and forth and saying this and saying that. Well, yesterday it took a new twist, and uh, Rep. Bilotti announced that unless Les Kondo produces by today, 4.30 p.m. today, documents that she's requested related to these audits, she's going to look at contempt charges uh, against Mr. Kondo. Uh, Criminal contempt is the way Les Kondo is interpreting it, by the way, meaning he could be facing uh, a year in jail, up to a year in jail, and a $1,000 penalty. So this is a serious uh, escalation, if you will, in the discourse regarding these audits.
0: Right. And he, and he said, too, that, you know, if he turns over some of this information that he might be breaking the law, too. Right. I mean, he's in a tough <laughs> spot.
3: Right. He, he has cited, um, you know, state laws that say that, I, look, I can't do this. This would be in violation. And, and by the way, uh, Les Condo is seeking for his office uh, outside legal counsel because he can't go to the attorney general as a state agency because he could potentially be the one that's the target of, of uh, contempt problems or whatever the challenge might be and so he's in a real pickle here rep bilotti did not return my call yesterday uh, but we can tell you that um, she has already scheduled um, more hearings next week including with someone that used to work uh in the, the auditor's office and the this is public information it's on the notice for the hearing looking at possible malfeasance or uh, mismanagement and other concerns, the key word here being possible, um, with relation to uh, the look, the examination of one of those audits. So we don't know where this is going, but uh, Kondo has all along said, look, you're not really looking into these audits. You're looking into my office. You seem to be trying to get some sort of dirt on me, to which Rep. Lottie and Scott Seiki, the House Speaker, said, no, it's our job to to look at these audits, to make to ask questions, to investigate when we need need to do so, and that's what they're doing.
0: Yeah, well, uh, certainly you you hope that this gets resolved, and, and hopefully next week's hearing will shed some light into what they're really after. Uh, because you you kind of worry about you know the legislative sessions just around the corner, and what does this mean for you know his office and his audits and the work that needs to be done.
3: Yeah, exactly. In fact, you know, the the state auditor is, in fact, hired by the state legislature, right? It has to be approved by the Senate and the House. And there have been some lawmakers uh, that have been upset with uh, Kondo's performance. Remember that Psyche... The speaker did order, uh, if you will, an audit of the auditor early this year. Remember, Colleen Hanabusa, Edwin mm-hmm. Young, others were involved. But same thing. Kono said, look, you're just trying to, this is a witch hunt. You're really just not happy because I'm doing my job. So we'll see what develops next week and how much longer this goes on. Um, it does, however, really appear to be moving to um, a new level Of engagement, and um, I will be covering those, and my guess is you and I will be talking about this again, (laughs) Catherine. Okay,
0: all right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. That that was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Read his story on this issue at civilbeat.org. We continue talking about the future of aquaculture in Hawaii we heard from Molokai resident Walter Reedy yesterday making a case for restoring ancient fish ponds in a nod to the past and trying to carve out a new future with a system that long worked for native Hawaiians today we talked to Hatch Blues Crystal Johnson who grew up in a Maui family fish business and who sees the need for Hawaii to invest in its future using new advances in science as we strive to become more self-sufficient and food secure
5: we are an aquaculture accelerator what that means is we invest in sustainable aquaculture and just to give a little bit of background um, i myself come from from the seafood industry uh, my family owned the largest seafood wholesale company in hawaii fresh island fish and so my background is really it's been wild caught seafood most of my life and i would say the last eight years I started really being drawn into the sustainable aquaculture sector. And I partnered up with a company called Hatch, and um, they have offices out of Norway, Singapore, and now also here in Hawaii. Hatch, uh, their vision and um, really what they stand for aligned really well, um, almost identical with my own beliefs in, in aquaculture. And they do not invest, and we will not invest, in anything that doesn't align Exactly, with with our own goals of sustainability. So I would say in the last two years we've invested in over 30 companies. They range from boy, there's there's one company that uh, it's a seaweed additive um, that's given to cattle that reduces you know methane.
0: Yes, we um, did a story on and, them. <laughs>
5: yes, right, right. So that's Ambrosia. They are out of Kona, and you know other other. Uh, projects I would be things like you know and this is kind of in response to Some of the the articles that come out and and some of the bad press about, you know, antibiotics being fed, uh, you know, to these aquaculture farms, whether they're offshore or on land. And, you know, there's ways to do aquaculture right and there's ways to do it wrong. So one of the things that can be done is just like humans, you know, if you give us a a probiotic, it keeps your gut healthy and the chances of you being sick are, are less. And it's the same for animals. So we invested in another company recently that produces a type of probiotic that's an ingredient that gets fed to fish to help the likelihood of antibiotics needing to be used. So, you know, the range of what we invest in and the types of companies we invest in are really broad, but they all fall under the umbrella of sustainable aquaculture practices.
0: You know, we often hear about farms on the mainland or off the mainland, I guess, you know, like for salmon. Maybe if if you can, for our listeners, kind of map out some of the projects that are currently in place now or that are in the pipeline?
5: You know, I can give a little bit of background too. I, you know, before I got into sustainable aquaculture, I didn't really know much about it. All I heard was what we all hear, you know, just the bad actors that are, you know, polluting. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that was going on up in Canada, up in Washington with the salmon farms, Chile. And honestly, it's like industrial farming that's done with uh, on land with cattle or, or any kind of farming. It can be done right and it can be done wrong. So, you know, I actually ended up traveling to a lot of countries that I believe, do the best type of aquaculture. So I spent a lot of time in Norway, Iceland. The way that I, I went out to these farms, they're family-run, many of them. They're growing salmon and trout and other species, um, large quantities for, for companies like Costco and you know where we get all of our salmon from. There are practices, and, and it really has a lot to do with the government. And so the government of, of Norway, the way that they've structured what they allow and what they don't allow these farms to do is extremely narrow and stringent and it keeps everybody compliant and the best practices have to be done because it's mandated all the way from the top down that's what i believe firmly with hawaii and and anywhere really if you want to do it right it needs to come from the top down and and i think there's a lot of pressure that could come from the bottom up too and Consumers knowing where their seafood comes from and and knowing what they what kind of practices should be acceptable and not acceptable you know the ASC certified FAP you know all, all the different types of certifications that that help compliance uh, to be more transparent so you know the way that we farm here in Hawaii there's I, I would say the kumachi that's being done uh, over in Kona by Blue Ocean Mariculture. Is really a poster child of sorts. They're doing it right. You know, they're offshore in Kona. There was, you know, I'm sure along the way some bumps, maybe I guess uh, some people that didn't really want to see the net pens out there. But when you think about it, I mean, the bottom line is we all want to eat seafood, right? And we all want fresh local seafood, if at all possible. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that over 60% of all the seafood we eat here in Hawaii from tuna to hamachi compachi whatever you're eating 60% of it is imported it's coming off of an airplane or a barge the poke that we get from from foodland or wherever we go over half of it is is being brought in and so if you know and and this is you know to speak to walter and, and anybody who wants to to talk about food security i'm all for it I I absolutely want food security and I want the the local fish ponds to be restored. I think we all do. I mean, that's just a no-brainer. But how many million people do we have here in the state uh, on any given day, tourists and locals? And the the pressure to provide that much seafood, you can't do it with fish ponds alone. You can't do it just with uh, wild-caught alone. So if anything... If we can do aquaculture correctly, then we can increase that number of locally sustainably raised fish that that we could do offshore. To answer your question, Catherine, about you know what kind of projects are in the works here in Hawaii for that, NOAA has been working on streamlining the process for permitting that offshore aquaculture that's in a few miles offshore. And you know when I first heard about it, I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds like just it could it could go really sideways it's taken over by the right authorities and and i think um they're really doing a great job they're on the right track they're they're getting input from from the public um from all the industry sectors involved to see what's the best way to streamline this and to keep it um safe for for everybody and so that goes back to what i was saying about what i saw in norway with with the fish farms there and and how they're run and and what the government allows and doesn't allow, and and so I feel like those processes are being put into place, the the streamlined uh, what's allowed and what's not allowed, and I know it's scary for the public to think, oh my gosh, we're gonna have these huge industrial sized net pens out in the ocean, but it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have, it, it won't be like that. We're not looking to export, you know, large amounts of, of seafood. I think it's really about just growing what we want to eat here. and the species, that was another thing that, you know, I noticed in some of the articles. A lot of people are worried about non-native species, and that's absolutely, you, you, nobody's going to be growing anything that's that's uh, non-native in, in net pens out in the ocean. That's, you know. Priority number one. So it, right now, like the kumapachi that's being grown in Kona, that's a local species. Obviously, moe, uh, nanu'e, and, and you know, there's all there's all kinds of other
0: species that can be done. Of the projects that you are familiar with that are in the pipeline, what's planned for Oahu?
5: I think that they're looking for permits for for moe, which they've already grown moe in very large quantities off Oahu, of and it was done without uh, issue. I I don't know all of the specifics as to why that. Stopped. Usually it has to do with, you know, uh, business management and funding and things like that. And so you have to go through the permitting process all over again when you want to uh, start up a new project, even if it's the same species. And so, you know, over in Oahu, they're growing tilapia over there. They're growing, obviously, you guys have the shrimp out in Kahuku, And I, I believe the next project is uh, they're looking for, for permits for Moy.
0: So what's the uh, appetite for investment in these seafood projects, these aquaculture projects?
5: So that's a really interesting question. And and it's something I've spoken to a few times in, in different interviews where, you know, with our business at Hatch, we see what investment looks like worldwide. And the companies that are being invested in with, with appetite throughout the world, they are in countries where the permitting process is straightforward and there's not going to be a lot of legal upheaval along the way and and things won't be drawn out for you know five ten years trying to get a permit so this was a big piece of investment here in Hawaii is without a very simple legal process and permitting process it's very hard to get investors on board you know there's definitely investors that you know want to do good and and want to help and and they see the profit potentials and obviously you know just the food security potential for for here in Hawaii but you know if if you had you know an extra let's say 20 million dollars laying around and you wanted to invest in something wouldn't you want to put it in something that you're going to get a return a return in a couple of years right if you if you I guess, had endless amounts of money, <laughs> uh, maybe you wouldn't mind if the return comes you know, during your grandchildren's generation or something like that. But most investors, they, they want to return pretty quick. And, and so if the permitting process here in Hawaii, it does take years, three to five years, just for probably what's happening over in Oahu. And, and I don't want to speak out of context there, but in general, it takes years to get permits to do anything out here. And so streamlining that process is what NOAA is working on, and I'm a huge advocate for as well. It's not about having lax rules. I want everyone to know that. Absolutely not. That's not what I want. It's not what Hatch wants or what NOAA wants. But it's it's definitely streamlining that process, figuring out what the best regulations are to have in place, and then making it simple for investors. So, you know, there's other countries where this uh, has been streamlined. Another big piece of it is federal and state funding. So the countries that have done really well, let's use Norway as an example because I'm very familiar with it, their government has invested billions into their, their seafood and, and aquaculture programs. And that really gets it off the ground, gets it up and running, and it, you know, it's, it becomes part of their gross domestic product, right? Uh, it, it raises their bottom line, and there's a good reason for them to do that. I think Hawaii needs to do the same. There's definitely been some, some funding and investment that has, has come through federal grants and through state. You know, they've, they've definitely invested over at NELHA, um, OI, and, and a few other areas. But as far as the uh, bottom line goes and how much needs to be invested, it, we have a long ways to go.
0: That was Crystal Johnson, who works in business development with Hatch Blue and Aquaponics Business Accelerator here in Hawaii. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and for this week's Manu Minute, we hear the song of one of the rarest birds in the world, the kiwi-kiu, or Maui Parrot Bill. Here's the University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart.
6: The kiwi-kiu, or Maui Parrot Bill, is found only in the highest elevation forests on Maui. At barely more than 100 remaining individuals in the wild, it's one of the rarest and most endangered birds in the world. It's also one of the most unusual. As their name implies, the upper bill of these birds is sharply hooked like that of a parrot. And helped by their strong neck muscles, they use this bill to shred and crush small branches and twigs of a variety of native tree species in search of their favorite food, tasty grubs that live under the bark. These stoutly built, green and yellow birds rarely sing, but when they do, it's the best way for biologists to detect them. kiwi are currently restricted to a relatively small patch of rainforest on Haleakalā, generally above the elevations where mosquitoes carrying avian malaria might pose a threat, but unfortunately the mosquitoes are moving up in elevation with global warming. An attempt was made in 2019 to translocate some birds to other forests on Maui to help expand the population, but most of these birds were bitten by disease-carrying mosquitoes and died within a few weeks of release. Amazingly, a lone male from this group was recently found alive and well after having not been seen for almost two years. One reason it's difficult to help increase the populations of these birds is that they have at most one baby per year, and then the juveniles are dependent on their parents for 12 months or longer. A debate is ongoing about the best ways to save this bird from extinction, which could happen in the next decade or two if nothing is done. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak
3: for the Friends of Hokalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at
6: friendsofhakalauforest.org.
0: Star Wars novel published this week gave one local author an opportunity to officially become part of that amazing universe. The book is entitled Star Wars Visions Ronin. It's directly connected to the Star Wars Visions animated short film anthology released on the Disney Plus streaming service last month. The first episode places its characters in a battle over a small village that evokes images of both classic Japanese samurai films and spaghetti westerns. It's titled The Duel. You don't look like one of the villagers. Who dares face me?
6: Just a simple wanderer. What? So
4: you're a Jedi. Your lightsaber blade is
3: red!
5: Unfortunately,
0: I am not a Jedi. Love those sound effects. The events of the duel comprise the first 25 pages of the Ronin novel. The subsequent 300-plus pages uh, encompasses an original story crafted by O'ahu native uh, Emma Emiko Candon. The conversation's resident Star Wars nerd, Russell SubiONO, talked to Candon about the opportunity.
7: I think the average person is aware of the movies, maybe even the TV series, but they may not know there's a whole world of Star Wars novels that are out there. So how did this opportunity come to you?
4: So my agent is aware that I'm an enormous Star Wars nerd Mm -hmm. and something agents often ask their writers is, are you interested in doing IP work? And if you are, are there any IPs in particular that you're interested in working with?
7: Can you explain what IP means?
4: Intellectual property.
7: Okay, okay, perfect, thank you.
4: So most writers I know would love to do a Star Wars thing in part because it's like the biggest thing you could possibly do. It's the one where, it's the intellectual property where the novels are like kind of the most well-known. It's also got all these comic series. So outside of like Marvel and DC, the comic powerhouses, like that's the one that people have their eye on. And she asked me in around this time last year, hey, they're looking for somebody of Japanese descent to write a Star Wars book, are you interested? And yes, of course I was interested, but she sent them for kind of my audition, the first chapter or so of the manuscript we were at the time trying to sell. And we did sell like in the middle of this, right after I had sold that, I got the call that Lucasfilm was interested in talking to me about doing this book. And they had to give me very little information before I said, yes, absolutely, whatever whatever we're doing here, this sounds fun. And that's why I'm in the very strange position of debuting with a Star Wars novel. Oh,
7: that's so incredible. I mean, what, what how did that feel when, when you knew that Lucasfilm wanted you?
4: I'm one of those people where the emotions don't hit me right away. I absorb the information and then I'm not even in a state of shock It's almost like denial that something has changed in my life. So, you know, I'd be driving to pick my wife downtown and suddenly I'd have the moment of, oh my God, they're asking me to write a Star Wars book. So yeah, that was a lot of it. It took a while for it to sink in, but until then I would just have these moments of delirious, okay, (laughs) this is where I am now.
7: So how does it work when writing a story that takes place within a long established universe When you sat down to write this story, did someone give you a list of pre-established peoples and locations that they had, that you had to use, or were you free to kind of just come up with your own species and places?
4: They let me do basically everything on my own. (laughs) Okay. The only thing that was set in stone was the inciting event, which is that animation. Mm -hmm. And after that, I've likened it to them putting me in front of a pasture and going okay now go build the barn <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of what it was that's the soul of the vicious project as a whole i think where they were banking on star wars as a narrative dna being so strong that creators could iterate on it and it would still very clearly be star wars but also be something else and Consequently, I had a lot of freedom. At Lucasfilm, they have what's called the story group, which is a bunch of people whose job is to maintain coherence across all of the different properties and lines they're putting out at a given moment. And this is all the many books that they're publishing, this is all the comics, this is all the movies. Everything goes through the story group. And Normally, what you get from the story group is them saying, oh, well, you can't have that kind of ship. It's not the right timeline. Or you can't have Lando this week. He's over here. But in my case, because so much of it was being made out of whole cloth, the only notes I ever got were along the lines of like, oh, can we like move a little more in this direction or a little more in that direction? And otherwise, they were beautifully helpful and hands-off.
7: So you really got the opportunity to kind of put you, put your like your stamp on the story and put your love of Star Wars into the story.
4: It really was in a way where I was pretty constantly like, oh, they're not going to let me get away with this. And then they did. So, which I think just goes to show their devotion to this thought project with visions where they're like, no, we're going to see what happens when we give creators who have a devotion to the franchise a, a love for it an adoration of it and who are willing to study it and try to understand well what does it mean for a thing to be Star Wars that was just such a unique and wonderful
7: pleasure I'm a pretty picky reader and I don't uh-huh. yeah I I don't last two things that are uninteresting but especially poorly structured you're a talented writer your narrative is tight. Your descriptions are fresh, and you vary your pace in very nice ways while always keeping everything moving forward. What's your origin story as a writer? Truth be told,
4: I've been very shy about my writing for 34 years, and I've recently had to rip off the Band-Aid and talk to people about a book I wrote. And my journey with writing is that I don't think I let myself take it seriously for a long time, even though I was very much doing it pretty much constantly. I think from around grade seven on up when I learned that you could do that, (laughs) a bunch of my friends had started this little forum on the internet and we were all writing stories and it suddenly occurred to me, oh my God, I like this, but I was really sort of trapped in that capitalist mindset of like, oh, but you shouldn't devote your time to anything that's not like a job that, you know, you can't make a living off of. So it was my thing I do in my spare time. And then in college, I got introduced to people who were interested in going into the publishing industry, which was when I started to think, oh, okay. So I could have my job and then I could have my side job where I do writing. So, you know, take it seriously in that respect. And then a couple of years after college, I got very, 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 very sick. I was hospitalized. And it's kind of funny because what I endured is much more well understood these days because I caught a virus and it destroyed my internal organs, particularly my lungs. So I was on a respirator and ECMO for four months. This was all happening in Japan. And I was lucky enough to be at a research hospital where the doctors were very devoted and very um, ambitious about the things they were willing to try to save my life. And they did, and I'm forever grateful to them, but it was six months from the time I was hospitalized to the time I was out of the rehab hospital where they thought I was strong enough to be sent home to recover. Mm -hmm. So I spent like the next year and a half here before I decided to go to grad school, like learning how to walk and also socialize with people. I also had to recover language because the socializing was not easy. And I think, again, people are starting to experience this with uh, you know, all of our pandemic lockdowns and like you can't socialize with people the way you used to. It was a little bit awkward. You kind of forget how to make small talk or even just to chat. And that was absolutely me in 2013. But it was the point at which I finished the revision of a novel and sent it to my agent. That was when I started to really feel like a human being again, not just alive, but like a person. And ever since then, I have really made it my business to let myself write as much as possible, at least a little bit every day, because I've noticed I get anxious when I don't get to do it and because it is so closely linked to like a gift I give to myself to be myself. Writing for me is very much part of how I tend my
7: health. Thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun.
0: I'm so glad to hear that, thank you. That was Oahu author Emma Mieko-Candon talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO. Her debut novel, Star Wars Visions Ronin, was just published this week. That's it for us now, but up tomorrow we hear more about a push to get native Hawaiians into STEM fields, including aquaculture. What do you think about a future in aquaculture? Leave your feedback on our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at the Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at Hawaii org. And you want to listen back to something you heard, find our archive shows online. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. ¶¶